0: Welcome to the UR Houston Podcast. This is your host, Nicholas Hall. And this is your co-host, Mario Castillo. How are you doing today, Mario? I'm doing wonderful today, ready to dive into the world of COVID-19 testing. Testing, testing, testing.
1: We have a wonderful guest today, Eric Bacota. How are you doing today, Eric?
2: Great. It's uh, another COVID Saturday. So just here taking a small break from work and happy to chat with you guys.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're happy to have you here. And uh, to give everybody just a, a brief introduction, um, we have Eric Bakota, who works for the Harris County Department of Public Health. He serves on the Your Houston Board and chairs the Health and Wellness Committee, which uh, has put out a great uh, policy paper all around uh, reduced parking at bars and nightclubs. Um, he's born in St. Louis, uh, but lives in Houston, Texas now. Um, got his graduate uh, degree, his master's in biology from U of H. Uh, very proud of that. Um, and I actually met Eric at the City of Houston Health Department when we both worked in epidemiology at the time Uh, and then he went to the county I went uh, to work for your Houston uh, but here we are today well Eric
1: welcome to the show and we're going to start off with a
0: few questions we like to
1: do a little icebreaker around here Uh, what's your morning routine
2: well Great and interesting question in these times. And and I just want to preface, uh, I do work for the county, but I'm not here representing or speaking on their behalf. Um, But I'm happy to share a little bit of insight into what I do and what I know about COVID-19. So my routine in this era of COVID-19 is every day around eight o'clock, I wake up. um, We have our morning meetings with uh, the people on the, the data team that I work with. Um, around 10, we get a big data dump that we then look at our numbers. Uh, we make sure everything looks right. We do some analyses and we share that information up to leadership. Um, and eventually that's what makes its way to the dashboard on the website. And between 10 and I'd say about six, it's a mix of data analysis and meetings, um, with uh, an occasional break to just check up on all of the emails I'm falling behind on. And then from 6 to about 8 p.m., I'll get a break to eat. And then sometime after 8, um, most days, not every day, uh, we'll do a couple of um, hours of either meetings or um, data analysis or catching up on emails. And... Uh, m- my day ends usually around, I'd say about 10 PM. Um, but occasionally you, you kind of have to burn the midnight hour, uh, burn the candle at the midnight hour and, and push through if there's a big deadline. And it's been like that for, uh, since March, really just a 60, 70, 80, 90 hour work weeks. Um, but it's, uh, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting work experience and an interesting change to my routine, but Um, I'm really honored by having the privilege of trying to do something proactive to, to help our community and, and help us get past COVID-19 together so that we can get back to some sense of normalcy.
1: Yeah. Uh, we appreciate everything you're doing. I I see a, a, a drawing up there behind you. Um, you got kiddos around.
2: Yeah. So in the midst of all this, um, my daughter, uh, second daughter, Samira was born and so, oh, wow. my congratulations. Uh, yeah, we're,
1: <laughs> we're going to do a little bit of round of applause on that one. Uh,
2: <laughs> congratulations. Uh, yeah, harrowing experience. She came seven weeks early, so she had to go to the NICU. Um, and uh, the uh, my other daughter, uh, Zoe, she made this welcome home picture. She wanted to make sure Samira knew the layout of the house, so she. Uh, she drew us a nice picture and I'm here in my makeshift office in my kid's room.
1: Well, I love it. It looks wonderful. And I'll, I'll, so the last question I'll ask for you then is, uh, are you a coffee person? How are you staying uh, energized here? There
2: we Very go. Very much. Drinking a cup of coffee right now. Usually it's about two or three cups a day. Um, once in a blue moon, I'll try some tea out. But uh, if it weren't for caffeine, I don't know how I'd be around.
1: Are, are you a black coffee person or do you add creamer? You you know, how, how do you like your coffee?
2: Black coffee. Yeah, hey,
0: that's, uh, that's the way to go. Straight
1: for the caffeine. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's the way I rock and roll. Um, well, thanks for being here today. Uh, we're we're going to talk about testing. And, you know, this is an issue that I really... Don't know
0: much about, so I, you know, I'm very interested in learning more. Well, Eric, you mentioned uh, data and and really spending a lot of time with that throughout your day, your routine. I think you know it'd be important just to see where we stand as a county with the latest numbers. Uh, so this is as a Friday, as of 4 p.m., uh, 42,000 confirmed cases, 28,034 active cases. 13,527 recovered cases and 439 deaths. And this is all public information available at readyharris.org. Uh, there's some interesting data points and terms. And I think, you know, if you could give us some insight into what these mean, it would just help folks better understand um, what these numbers mean, where you get them from. So when you look on the dashboard, there's City of Houston numbers. There's Harris County numbers, and then there's a combined total, the combined total of the numbers uh, that I just read, and then you'll see case chart versus cases by day as a count. Uh, so, what what are the difference? You know, what's the difference between those two metrics?
2: Yeah, um, let me let me take a step back, and first, I'll explain um, that why we have a Harris County number and a and a City Houston number. And that has to do with, um, like you mentioned earlier, uh, you and I, we met working at the Houston Health Department. So the city of Houston has a health department that serves the 2.3, 2.4 million people within the city limits. And then Harris County has a health department that's where I currently work uh, that serves the 2.5 or so million people who live in Harris County but not in the city of Houston. Um, And so it creates some, uh, can create some administrative challenges to present the data in a way that makes sense to the community. But I think that um, the city and the county have done an amazing, impressive job of coming together and and, uh, having this unified dashboard so that the public understands everything as clearly as possible. Um, and with respect to the two different types of charts, uh, we had a a lot of, uh, there's a lot of different ways to present the data. Um, and what the CDC has is they usually, they define a term called event date, and that's going to be where a case, let's just say, um, I got tested today, um, and I, you know, I got my results today. Of, I'm a case, I'm a positive case on, on July 11th, um, but I got tested on July 9th, uh, and I was symptomatic on July 1st. Uh, I likely got the disease sometime before July 1st, right? There's going to be a lag time between when, when the virus enters my system, when I have symptoms, when I go to get tested, and then when I get those test results back. And the two different graphs you see on the website reflect that you can show the data as an epi curve, and that's going to be where you use uh, the when I got became symptomatic, because that's going to say um, you likely got the virus on or around um, July 1st when I got symptoms. And so that means even though I got tested on the 9th and I got the results back on the 11th and the health department didn't know about me until the 11th. Um, that really, I'm a July first case. Uh, on the other hand, when you see uh, in the on Twitter, on the news, like 800 new cases reported today, those 800 cases actually get shuffled back into um, into the epi curve. Um And so, shoot, let me. I think I'm <laughs> confusing. On. A
1: little bit of baby brain. Uh, yeah. You know, it is confusing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what's so fascinating about this is I think that everybody's confused by it.
0: And this yeah. is why we we appreciate you taking time to to break this down for us because, you know, we are just, you know, there's a, a lot of folks out there trying to understand this. This is really important information. Yeah.
1: yeah. And before, like, so before we get epi curved out, um, like, I just want to start off with, I want to get tested. How do I get tested? I think I may have it. Where do I go?
2: So if you go to readyharris.org, you'll see um, an option to get tested and it'll tell there uh, there'll be information on, you can get tested at, I think like CVS's and Walmart's as well as tested by the county itself. Um, So you can, uh, you fill out a little survey, a questionnaire, and then you'll get a unique identifier. Uh, it's just an alphanumeric number. And um, when you fill that, when you get that number, you take it. It'll say, please show up at this testing site, at this address, on this date, at this time. You show up there, you share them the number that was given to you, and they will um, they will get you tested. You don't have to leave your car. It's all um, done in a very safe way. Uh, the... Nurses at this site will be wearing full PPE, protective equipment to make sure they're safe, um, and they'll walk you through the process. And what'll happen, and I've, I've done this myself, when my daughter was born, I, I went through the process, I got tested, and um, you know, it took me maybe 30 minutes to go uh, into the testing site and to leave with um, my sample having been collected. And the nurses will put a, a large, uh, a long Q-tip rather, in the back of your nose. And it, it is a unpleasant sensation, but it won't hurt you. It's not too terribly painful, just more unpleasant than anything. And that's where they collect the uh, the viral DNA and then send it off to the lab to get tested.
0: So just to clarify, if I live in the city of Houston, could I go to a Harris County facility for a test or do I need to go to a city of Houston facility for a test?
2: Um, it will, the, the, whether you're a county resident or a city resident, um, it, anybody who fills out the form, uh, it will send you to the closest testing site that has, um, capacity. So it, the system will say, okay, this, the nearest site maybe is full. So we'll go, you take, send you the next closest one. Um, whether you're in the city or in the County, it, it won't matter.
0: And just out of curiosity, what, what's our capacity today?
2: Uh, Overall, I want to say it, uh, if I remember correctly, mid 2000s, um, tests per day.
1: So that's if you go through a public channel for testing, right? And that's either city or County. Right. What about, you know, I, I want to do like a telemedicine appointment and, reach out to my physician, maybe I was exposed to somebody, maybe I got notice of something. Uh, how easy is that to get a test and, and where would you go?
2: So you can call your provider, um, your, your, uh, your PCP, and they will advise you on if testing is warranted and, and you follow their advice and their directions as, um, uh, from your family doc. Um, you can also go to several clinics in the area. Like I mentioned, the CVS, the Walgreens, as well as, uh, urgent care centers, they will take, uh, uh, samples from, from individuals and then send them off to a lab. Having said that, I don't know offhand their pricing structure. So I don't know if it would be something insurance would cover, if you'd have to pay out of pocket. Um, those would definitely be questions you'd want to ask before you, um, you go in to get a specimen collected. Uh, the ones operated by the city and county are free of charge.
1: So I guess some, another question I have is all the tests, are they all created equal? Is is the city, is county, and maybe we're not going to know the answer to this question, but are they all using the same test and
2: same labs? Simple answer Uh, same test. Yes. The complicated answer is no, it's not technically the same test. However, these tests do go through, uh, an approval process with the FDA. And so for the PCR tests, that's the the one where they're going to put a Q-tip up, up your nose and they're going to, um, send it off. That's the one we look at, uh, to determine if you have the disease right now. Um, all those tests are highly accurate and reliable. Um, and so the, I wouldn't worry too much that there, there are different uh, labs that technically are looking for different segments of DNA. So a technical person might say, yeah, they're slightly different, but from a practical perspective, they're exactly the same.
0: So when I went to get tested at a city of Houston site, I had to do the actual collection. So you've been myself. tested. Yes, I so, have. So both of you
1: have actually gone through the. Uh, all right. So I'm, I'm going to have a lot of questions, but go ahead, Mari.
0: They put all the the kit in a in a tub, and they give it to you, and you actually put the Q-tip up your nose and collect the sample yourself, put it, seal it, and give it back. So it's the same experience that Eric had, except. Somebody administered the test to him. I administered the test to myself. So what, what's the experience
1: like? Does it hurt? Is it, you know, is it?
0: You know, I think he described it very accurate. It's not necessarily painful, but it is unpleasant. Okay. Um,
1: so you go get tested. How long before you get your results?
0: Two days I got my results.
2: Yeah, my results, I think, came back. It was probably about three or four days. Um, and I, I do want to add that there is a, another type of um, P, uh, DNA test where, or RNA test, uh, where um, you can get your results in 30 minutes. Uh, those are uh, the, the county facilities don't use those tests. But, uh, for instance, when my wife went into labor, That was the test they administered to her to know whether, you know, they treated her assuming she had uh, COVID-19 as a precautionary measure. And so they used that rapid test to be able to make sure she didn't have COVID-19 and that the staff and the nurses and the doctors who were treating her um, didn't have to worry about becoming um, potentially exposed individuals.
1: That's fascinating because I didn't even know about the rapid test. I didn't either. And I would assume that those are in a limited supply and and used in the most critical um, situations. Um, So you get tested, you get your results in two to four or five days. Um, It comes back positive. I'm assuming neither of you have tested positive. So so we're not going to know the answer on that one, but it comes back negative. Can you then get another test if you have a negative test? Say you don't, Say, for instance, so say you get tested. Say you're like, I really feel internally, even if it's psychosomatic or something else going on, but I really feel like I was exposed. I've been around somebody. It came back negative, but I, I still feel like I may, be, I may have it. So could you go through the public channels to get tested again? Or is it you got tested, that's it, that was your shot, you're going to have to, you know, give it a justifiable reason to get tested again.
2: From the county's perspective, um, no, there's no, uh, limit on how many times you could get tested. If you feel like you, um, need to be tested or want to be tested, we'll, that we'll, we'll, and you get the, um, a slot at one of the sites, you know, we'll test you multiple times. Uh, and, um, and that's, Important because you know if you do test negative and you've never had the disease, uh, there's nothing to say you won't get it in the future. And so we, you know, the, the critical issue is knowing who has it right now. And so if you are you get tested and a week later, a month later, you feel like you have a cough or a fever, um, shortness of breath, then absolutely get tested so that uh, the public health system is aware that you may have the disease and can do contact tracing to do it uh, so that the, the, we can do our best to stop the spread of this disease. Without testing, we will have no ability to stop the spread.
0: So we're talking COVID-19 testing here with Eric Bakoda and all about you know, the, the processes and the increase in testing. And, you know, you hear folks say, well, of course, we're going to have more cases because we're doing more testing. Uh, but now you're also hearing about something called a positivity rate. So can you can you tell us what that is and, and how is that impacting, you know, how y'all are interpreting the data and the results from these tests?
2: Yeah, and, and there is some truth to the more you test, the more positives you'll find. Um, but that positivity rate is going to provide a lot of context. So if you see uh, testing goes up, and the uh, positivity rate is also going up, then that's a clear indicator that um, the disease is in the community at a higher level than it was earlier, uh, because what the positivity rate is telling you, what percentage of tests on a given day or a given week come back positive? So it doesn't matter if you do 100 tests or 1,000 tests. Um, if the positivity rate, the percentage of tests that are positive, goes up, then there's um, a, a stronger evidence to suggest that the virus is spreading the community more thoroughly. So, what positivity rate are we seeing currently? Do you know? Uh, last I checked, um, I want to say it's in the in the twenty percent, twenty five percent. That's um, not- gone
0: up then, right? I mean, that seems high, but but what it What's your thought yeah. on that?
2: At, at some point in, in Texas, we were below the 9%. And, and that's really where that was a goal is to stay below 9% positivity rate, or even as low as 6 or 3%. Um, and to see it as high as it is, is definitely concerning and, and suggesting that we don't have as good of a control on the spread of disease as um, we'd like as, uh, as a state or a community
1: is there a positivity rate that we're aiming for? I mean, clearly zero, right? Um, but but when, when do the alarm bells start to ring?
2: Yeah, it, what I've read is that, that public health officials are saying that if you have a positivity rate somewhere maybe below 3% or below 6%, that you have the best chance to get a, you have a, a reasonable chance to get a, um, uh, a handle on the spread of the disease Uh, using traditional public health practices. So that's going to be contact tracing, uh, public health communication, um, education. And when it gets above that, that especially when it gets above 9%, then that's when a lot of different officials around the nation and even the world are saying you need something a little bit more... Uh, extreme uh, around, you know, shutting down certain sectors of society to stop or slow the spread of the disease.
0: So we just saw in the news, the county had to close uh, a testing site because of the heat the other day. You know, as we're getting into these summer months when this is going to be, you know, the heat is going to be increasing, um, what's the contingency plan to keep the testing levels at you know, normal operating capacity if we're dealing with, uh, high temperatures.
2: Yeah. And I'm not aware of what our, um, contingency plans are. That's, that's not a part of the operations I'm familiar with. Uh, but I will say that when it comes to any incident, uh, response, whether it's COVID-19 or hurricane, um, the, uh, it's always safety first. We, we want to make sure that public health practitioners are safe and there's a, a role, every health department um, goes into what's called incident command structure during an event like Harvey, um, like uh, um, COVID 19. And there's a position in that incident command structure called a safety officer. And that person's sole responsibility is to make sure that the responders are safe and um, doing well. And, and that's the one position that actually has the ability to overrule the incident commander. Um, so if the incident commander says one thing and the safety officer says, nope, we feel like the safety is um, being um, compromised in with this activity, then the safety officer can trump the incident commander. The incident commander otherwise is uh, the chief executive for all decisions. And so with that, we definitely want to make sure our personnel who are out there in that full PPE stay safe, stay hydrated, stay cool.
1: So we've got the testing, and, and you know we're, we're also seeing in the, the headlines in the news the death rates, and, and I'm also seeing stuff about the rolling averages. How do these different data points kind of all? play together, uh, you know, within the, the, the monitoring and the analytics side of, of, uh, public health?
2: Yeah, that it's a great question. Um, so a lot of times you'll see the counts presented as they are. So let's just say today we had a hundred cases and tomorrow it was 500 and, and the next day it was 250. And so you'll see that number bounce around quite a bit and it adds a lot of Uh, variation that makes it a little bit more difficult to interpret when you're at a peak or when things are changing. And that's where the uh, rolling average comes into play. Um, And what a rolling average is, is basically saying today's number, the count for today is the average of the count for the past seven days. Um, And that's helpful because a lot of times you'll see what we call the weekend effect. So you'll see case counts, plummet during on a Saturday and Sunday, and then skyrocket on a Monday. And that can be due to many issues. It can be due to just a, a lag in the data, a lag in testing. Um, if you have a seven-day rolling average, it, it actually smooths and eliminates that bias such that you get a, a, a stable or a more stable number to be able to use for your analysis and interpretation.
0: So when you have a, a number on Monday that's a large number, are you saying that some of those cases, although they're reported on Monday, are attributed to Sunday and then some are attributed to Saturday and some are attributed to Friday? They're just
2: reported on a Monday in a sort of a large bucket? They can be. Um, it depends on how they, they were reporting. Like I was mentioning, there's that epicurve, which is really about when did the person start to have symptoms? So you, your, your symptoms show up. Monday you know through Sunday and it doesn't really matter. But when it comes to getting tested or you know some people can only get tested on the weekend. Other people can only get tested on the weekday. And so you when you see these numbers that shoot up on a Monday, it's important to look at the context and see is that due to perhaps a a real spike or is it due to the fact that, you know, if the Saturday and Sunday numbers were low, then maybe the Monday numbers are really just a reflection of all three. And you can get around that when you see a rolling average. If you see a seven-day rolling average, you won't have to worry about um, having to make that um, uh, calculation or uh, adjustment.
1: So, all of this is just so fascinating. And, and you know, and we've talked about COVID before and it, you know, I bet a lot of this is just continuing to improve and we're starting to see, you know, all these different adjustments as, we, as we're learning on the fly, if you will. Um, I noticed that the Astros, you know, good old Houston Astros, they apparently do not have the rapid testing then because I saw that they didn't get their test results and I believe the headline was because FedEx wasn't delivering that day. Um, or whatever the, the, the mode of transit was for the testing. Um, so I guess, you know, from my perspective is, it sounds like these tests are being sent off to a lab, and if that was the case that they were being FedExed, are they being sent to like a centralized location? Is it a CDC location? You know, where's the interplay between that? Where you get tested, they send the test off, to get the results, um, and are and are we really seeing? I guess my biggest issue is: are we really seeing that some are more accurate than others?
2: It uh, so with testing, it's uh, originally it was just the CDC who could do the tests. Now we see lots of labs, and they're all doing it with their own processes. They've been FDA approved, so they can um, they can provide a clinical diagnos- diagnosis diagnosis. Uh, And so with the um, MLB, you know, they sent it to their their the main MLB lab. I think it's in Utah um, that does a lot of also their drug testing. I believe. So they have
1: their own own testing. Then they have their own site.
2: Correct. And so my instinct, my experience with this is that they probably are going to have a rough start. They're going to work out some of their processes because it's new. Everybody's trying to build the airplane while they're flying it. Um, but eventually when they uh, add some additional quality assurance and quality control pieces, you'll see the testing be uh, you know, a much smoother um, process uh, for MLB to where they'll be able to get that 24 to 48 hour turnaround without any issues.
0: So you mentioned the CDC being the only lab initially that was doing this test. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of government agencies that are involved here. Can, could you just sort of break down how this flows, you know, from the data side, the city's reporting numbers, the county's reporting numbers, the te- Texas has the department of state health services. We have the CDC, which I think it ultimately all rolls up to, but, you also have FEMA involved in testing, you know? So h- how does all this fit together?
2: So this is a fascinating topic in and on its own. Uh, there's actually a, a, a group out there called the Public Health Network for Law that um, just a bunch of great people that that will answer questions around how do these government agencies work and what's the legal rights. And And one big thing that I think that the public's not aware of is public health is, because of the 10th Amendment, A function of the states so just like police uh you know public health is a police power so the federal government the cdc does not have regulatory authority they have money they can definitely say here's here's a big grant please do the the way we want you to do it they have a lot of scientific expertise where we'll go to the cdc and say um what's the best scientific consensus on guidance and uh the cdc will provide that answer but in the end, um, it's the states who determine what are the legal requirements and legal powers of public health. So when it comes to testing, um, with, what you've seen is that um, the CDC uh, has kind of, um, uh, and, the, and the federal government as a whole, has let the states take the lead. And so you see, while they provide a supporting role, the states and the locals have come together to do what they can to improve testing numbers. And here locally, we've partnered with uh, agencies in the medical center and um, other hospitals and labs nearby because we know that in the end, um, we have to take care of our community. And that's only going to come by uh, uh, leveraging all the resources and talent we have in our community to be able to improve testing. Um, The CDC and the the feds have done, um, in my opinion, at least a a, uh, subpar amount of work in getting testing numbers up.
0: And what's FEMA's role in all this?
2: So FEMA provides emergency management support since this is uh, a disaster uh, that they they are able to provide logistical support um, and uh, probably some administrative support. Um, but they're, uh, and I believe, and I may be wrong on this, that um, they were having a, a role in the testing sites, the federally supported testing sites. Um, but... Um, but I'm not entirely sure of their role at the federal level and how it intersects with the local level.
0: Gotcha.
1: So you, it just sounds like something we deal with all the time, a bunch of different silos, a bunch of different sources of data. Uh, it sounds like the media could pull and play from different you know, data points, data sets, so forth and so on. Um, and so, you know, I kind of want to go back to, what I've also seen on headlines, which is about issues concerning surprise billing, right? You go in, you get a test, and then you get a you know thousand dollar bill or something like this. Uh, is there anything, you know, that Eric that you've seen which is the most predictable model for controlling your costs?
2: <laughs> um, not. For as it relates to COVID-19, I will say in terms of surprise billing, I had a bit of a scare with, with that. When uh, my daughter was born, We uh, she was seven weeks premature, and so um, we rushed my wife to the hospital, and I had no idea what hospitals were covered and what weren't. Um, And so we get to the hospital that uh, we were pretty sure was the right hospital we're supposed to deliver at. um, And she delivers, she has to sign a bunch of paperwork in the middle of the labor process. And what we find out afterwards is while her delivery was covered, the NICU was out of network. And so we were at risk of surprise bill. Seemed a little odd to me. It was in in the midst of, of COVID-19, the response, and having a baby that's, that's seven weeks early, I have now this, this surprise billing anxiety thrown upon me. Um, thankfully though, uh, I was able to work with um, my insurance through my work and uh, my wife's insurance through her work. And while one of the insurances were out of network, the other was in network. And so we, our solution was, and thankfully we had the ability to do this was, just throw everybody's insurance onto the baby and somebody will cover that bill and protect us from surprise billing. Uh, But in my opinion, that's not a way to do business. That's the new parents don't need that level of stress. Um, And it just seems like something where when you want to have everybody uh, do the right thing to stay healthy and stay well, in particular with COVID-19 to get tested, To get treated, you don't want them having to decide, well, do I get treated or do I stay home and try to write it out because I don't want that big bill to sink the rest of my financial life.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's just a big issue for people who may not even have insurance, you know? So if you don't have insurance, can you go to the county or the city side? Are they both free?
2: So for testing, yes, certainly. Uh, for treatment, if um, you know the Harris County has um, the Harris Health System, so that's the public hospital system, which is different than the public health department. Um, so that's Ben and LBJ, and so those hospitals are funded through uh, taxpayers and and supported through our tax dollars to be able to treat and and provide assistance to those who don't have insurance. Um, And having said that, if anybody feels like they're uh, suffering through a medical emergency, um, hospitals are legally prevented. Uh, They cannot refuse treatment for somebody who has a life-threatening condition. Um, regardless of your ability to pay, if, if you feel like you need life-saving treatment, um, get yourself to uh, a hospital or a doctor or call your primary care physician and get, seek their guidance.
1: Yeah. I think that's an important message to send is, you know, this, this is a health crisis and, it, you know, we already got enough anxiety and enough st- stuff going on in our lives with everything changing. Uh, you know, we had, uh, Dr. Massoud on and, you know, we don't even say the new normal anymore, right? Yep. So it's just, it is how we are. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, if if, if it's me, because I'm not giving medical advice, but if it's me, I'm going to get tested if I, if I think I'm going to need to get tested and I'll, I'll sort out the billing issues after the fact. Uh, but it'd be good to see leadership do something to make sure that that is a
0: predictable process um, in the future. Well, The website for the county assessment tool to uh, potentially obtain a code to go get testing is www.readyharris.org. And you can go there. Uh, They have the link to the assessment, um, which uh, you will fill out, and it will direct you to to the nearest testing site if you um, are deemed necessary for a test. And then for the city, for the city, there's a hotline, there's a COVID hotline, um, 832-393-4220 is the number that you would call uh, to obtain a code to, to go to one of the city of Houston's uh, free testing sites. And we'll be sure to put links down
1: below and, uh, you know, I, I can't thank you enough, Eric. I know having a, a baby, congrats again, um, you know. We'll be sure to send you a lot of coffee, uh, you know, and, uh, you just have a wonderful weekend and, uh, you know, thank you so much for all this information.
2: Yeah, of course. Always happy to help.
1: If you're listening, uh, please like us. If you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe, hit that subscribe button. Uh, everybody out there, take care of your families, your loved ones, take care of yourself. This has been another episode of Your Houston. Have a wonderful weekend.
0: Have a great weekend. All right. I think that went well. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
2: Remember that epic curve? And it is so difficult to describe (laughs) and find what it is. So
1: The, the epic curve on. Just this data, is that dealing with like the rolling averages and the trending and the analysis or?
2: It more? There's two ways of looking at the case count. So you can look at it. How many cases are we reporting today? But today we might have 100 cases that were back from April. And so do you leave those 100 cases on today's value or do you shuffle them back to April? And that's why we present both is we want you to know because what, what the public hears is, oh, we announced 1,000 cases today and they're, we had 1,000 because that's what they heard. But really, 500 of them were from April. And so when we presented just the EPI curve, people were getting confused. Like, oh, I thought you said on July 1st, you had 1,000 cases, but now I only see 500. It's like, well, yeah, but 500 of those cases were from April. So we shuffled them back into April.
0: <clears throat> that positivity rate, is scary. Yeah. Hey, yeah, J, I, JT, hit the keep it
1: recording. Like, hit record again,
0: if you can. I didn't know it, it was that high.
1: I, I mean, so so the positivity rate is spiking. We're seeing that. I read that the military is apparently coming in, and, and there's talks I've been seeing in different Facebook groups, people posting, people saying stuff about you know they're they're getting these refrigerated trucks ready.
0: I mean, where is this trending? It doesn't sound like it's trending in a great direction. The fact that the governor's talking about shutting down the state, you know it's bad. That's the last thing he wants to do. <sighs> what At what point does the
1: positivity rate? Right, do they go, okay, that's it, we're shutting it down? I mean, has that been defined, Eric? Have you seen where they've defined if it hits 25%, that's it. That's the threshold?
2: Yeah, uh, not to where there's a... A trigger for there's no one trigger that is like if this then we shut everything down um so you're looking not just at positivity rate but you're also looking at things like uh hospital capacity at um uh you know what are maybe some of the contributing factors for the positivity rate uh you're looking at special populations like hospitals or uh, nursing homes and seeing, all, cause that's where we want to keep the disease out of nursing homes, especially because that has such a high mortality rate. Um, you know, if, if the positivity numbers go up and I don't mean spike, I just mean moderately up, but we see that it's mostly 20 somethings, then that's, A concern, but it's not quite the same concern. If we see it go up and it's mostly seventy-somethings, then it's a um, a a much scarier number because of the potential for loss of life. It's much the younger you are, the more likely you are to survive COVID-19, and that's why there is no one number or no one metric where it's like if we hit this metric, we're going to uh, shut everything down. It really is up to our public health leaders or experts to kind of take all that information in and make a call based on, um, their judgment and assessment of the situation.
1: It it just, it does not seem like it's on a good trajectory. Um, and you're going back to that rapid testing, you know, the, the rapid test, I wonder how many of those if they're available. Is the rapid test different than the nose test?
2: It's the same. The no, the, the it's the same swab. It just has to do with um, how exactly the the chemistry on the sample works and the speed at which the chemistry happens. Um, so you see, this was the Abbott test. I don't know if you ever saw the headlines that uh, the rapid Abbott test that came out. I want to say in April. Um, and so they're scaling up production. I'm, I don't know their supply chain issues, but uh, you'll see more and more of those point-of-care tests as supply chain issues get worked out. Um, but they're, by and large, just as reliable as the 48-hour test. Uh, you know, they're certainly... Um, I would trust them if if they came back positive or negative from that test.
1: Does anyone know what the the margin of error rate is on these Different tests.
2: Uh, I don't. I think it's pretty low. Uh, I asked uh, a, a lab guy, and he's like, "There." You know, he didn't give me a specific number, but he's like, "They're they're really trustworthy." There's especially if it's a positive, then you it's not. There aren't really that many false positives.
0: So, are y'all tracking like a false positive rate countywide, or
2: not? I'm not. Um, I think that that would be more a function of the labs uh, to be able to do that than it would be um, uh, like a, the public health system because so, the labs are going to know, um, and, and maybe at the state level they could do this. Uh, it's just really hard to get lab data in this system. Mm.
1: Well, let's hope that the, uh, the ten hospital doesn't need to go back up and people otherwise follow directions and, you know, and from everything that I'm seeing, it just looks like we're going to be back in a stay at home yeah. um, situation sooner than later. Um, and, uh, but yeah, man, with the baby, <laughs> Hey, <laughs> keep trucking.
2: We, yeah. We've done, uh, maximum social distancing. So like we, we go to H-E-B and we do the curbside and, um, you know, we or we cook at home, or we order takeout. Uh, even with the Uber Eats, you know, they've got they'll drop off the food at the front door. Mm-hmm. Everything's contactless, and and I will say it's really it encouraging and exciting to see how much of the uh, the Houston Harris County community is wearing masks, is is being socially distant. Um, I'm sure there are people who aren't, but at least the, in my circle, I see a lot of people who are abiding by these public health rules, uh, and guidelines, I should say. And that's important because even if you're going to be, you know, a 20 or 30 something who gets sick, um, and recovers ultimately, if you have to go to the hospital, if you have to use an ICU bed. Then you're taking valuable resources from uh, a patient who's maybe older or has comorbidities and needs that ICU bed. And so we want, even as a younger individual, we want to do our part in wearing masks, staying socially distant, and finding creative ways to be socially engaged with people, whether it's through Zoom chats or um, uh, you know Facetiming friends and family, as opposed to going to visit.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe even some socially distant testing soon on the horizon, right? Where we actually can get it sent to our home and test and send it off. Um.
2: Yeah, there are, there are companies working on that. There was one company out of Austin who tried to push out that product, but then the FDA said, uh, no, you guys are not approved. Please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that that is something that the, the, the people are looking into is that at-home testing.
1: I'm gonna do one more time. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do the formal outro for your Houston. I didn't do it this time, but I'm gonna do it this time. This time. Uh, how many times could I say this time? But thank you for watching your Houston. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Bye bye.